morning, everyone. Last week, um, Peter Cowie took us through David's song in 2 Samuel 22. And I really enjoyed um, the opportunity to having different people doing the different readings. Now, that chapter, it's a chapter that's a good length. It's 51 verses. So it lends itself really, really well um, to having split readings. But today we're going to look at a slightly smaller group of verses, seven in total, as we look at David's last words in 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 to 7. Now, I was talking with some of the guys on Friday night that um, because Peter's message was 51 verses in total, and it took approximately 35 minutes, so on that ratio, a seven-verse message should be finished in about five minutes. So we might be in for a very early morning tea. But unfortunately for those of you that um, are really hungry or are really hanging out for a cuppa, that's not the case, unfortunately. But turn with me to 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 to 7, and let's read out our text this morning. So 2 Samuel 23 verses 1 through to 7. Now these are the words that, so these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. It's interesting, these probably aren't um, David's actual final words, like his, his deathbed words, though they are written very much at the very end of his life, but they're more likely to be his last words to Israel as a nation his last literary legacy or poetic testimony to Israel. His last words are often thought to be his final instructions and warnings to his son Solomon as he hands over the throne, which are found in 1 Kings 2, verses 1 through to 10. But last words are an interesting thing. If we have the chance to share our last words with people, we would want to be able to share those words with the people that are important to us, the ones that we really love and hold dear. We would want them to be words that sum up 
what is important and what they need to hear. And we see this with David's last words to the people of Israel. They are words that David knows are important and he wants the people of Israel to hear them because he loved them and he held them dear. In his final days, these are the words that he wanted future generations to hold on to. And in these verses, the theme is the rule of the righteous king and the Lord's covenant promise with David. And we see in these following verses, in verse 1, we see the grace of God. In verses 2 through to 5, we see the righteous king and the faithful God. In verses 6 to 7, we see the judgment of God. So let's have a look at verse 1. We read these words. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. David is described in four different ways which show us that God has his hand of grace on his life from an early age. Firstly, David is described as the son of Jesse. Now, David came from humble beginnings and a small town. He was a shepherd boy sitting outside tending his father's sheep. And he wasn't even the firstborn son of Jesse. He was the youngest. His family wasn't powerful or priestly, and he was a grandchild of a Moabitess. But God still chose him to be the king of Israel. And not just any king, but their greatest king, apart from the future Christ, the king. We're reminded that all that David became was solely because of God. Secondly, in verse 1, we read that David was the man raised up on high. The NIV puts it this way, the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High. Now, David didn't say that he became king because of his own ability, personality, or skill. David was the king of Israel because God put him there. There was nothing that David did or was that promoted him to such a position. It was the grace of God that lifted him up to the position that he held. Does that sound familiar? It should, because the same God who poured his grace onto a young shepherd boy is the same God who pours his grace onto sinners like you and me and picks us up, cloaks us in the righteousness of his son and adopts us into the family of God. David didn't deserve to be king, just like we don't deserve to be adopted into God's family. But if we know Jesus as our own Lord and Saviour, that's what we are. This is the grace of God, giving us what we don't deserve. David, the son of Jesse, knew God's grace, and we can too. Thirdly, David was said to be the anointed 
of the God of Jacob. Now, this takes us back to when David was anointed by Samuel as a teenager to become God's chosen king of Israel. Samuel had come to Jesse's house to anoint one of his sons, but it wasn't any of his first six sons that was chosen by God. So Jesse called for his youngest son, David, to come in from tending the sheep in the field. And in 1 Samuel 16, 12 and 13, we read, And the Lord said to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David that day forward. He was the anointed king. This was also a fulfillment of Samuel's meeting with Saul in 1 Samuel 13, 14, where Samuel told Saul that his kingdom would not continue, but the Lord has sought for himself a man after after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a commander over his people. So what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? which David was. And Paul helps answer this question for us in Acts 13, 22, where he says, and when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So a man after God's own heart is someone who will do the will of God. What set David apart was that his heart was pointed towards God. He had a deep desire to follow God's will and do everything God wanted him to do. David also had an absolute faith in God. We see this in Samuel 17 when David faces Goliath as a young man and kills the giant. David says that the Lord who delivered uh, me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He had complete faith in God that he would deliver David from any danger. David also loved God's law and mentioned this often in many Psalms. He was also a man who was truly thankful to God in the times of joy and the times of despair. In Psalm 100 verse 4, David wrote, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. A lot of us know that as as a song, so you guys can be thankful that I read that and didn't sing that. And even when he sinned, he came to God in true repentance with a broken and contrite spirit, desiring to restore that relationship with God that he had damaged. So as Christians, what a wonderful example we have in David as he set before us on what what a man or woman, a boy or girl, after God's own heart looks like. May it be our heart's desire to seek to do the will of God and to do everything God wants us to do, to have a heart that points to our creator, to walk in absolute trust and faith 
to love his word and to be thankful to the Lord in all things and all times. May we desire to be people after God's own heart. So back to our verse, we see that David was the anointed king, the one chosen by God to rule over Israel. He wasn't just any king, he was God's king. And not just any God, this was the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the covenant. Who better to serve than the God of Israel? Fourthly, in this verse 1, David is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. David wasn't just a ruler. First and foremost, he was a worshiper of God. As a young shepherd boy tending his father's sheep in the fields, he would have had plenty of time to learn instruments, dwell on the God of Jacob, and worship the Creator. And as a young man, he was able to use those skills and play music in the court of King Saul to help calm him. And as king himself, he led the nation of Israel into worship of the one true God. David's faith and love for God was manifested in his worship to God. He wrote nearly half the Psalms that we read today and many other songs of worship to the God of grace that took an unknown shepherd boy and made him king of Israel. David had a heart to worship God. So as we look back in verse 1, we see that David knew that all that he had was from God. It was not from his own work, but because of God's grace in his life. God was his provider, and through this, David desired to worship his God, the God of Israel. And as we come to God, regardless of what we are going through at the moment, do we come with a heart of thanksgiving and a heart of praise to the one who has poured his love and grace onto a broken sinner and transformed us into a child of God through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. I pray that I too may have a heart of worship for the one who deserves all worship. So let's look now at the righteous king and the faithful God in verses 2 through to 5. These verses say, say, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God, and he shall be the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth, by clear shining after rain. And although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation, and all my desire, will he not make it increase? It's really interesting because in verses 2 and 3, David makes it really clear that these words are God's words and not his own words. Four times 
Four times he stresses that this is God speaking through him. He says, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said. The rock of Israel spoke to me. David wasn't just speaking for God. God was speaking through David. So why would David repeat this point that these are God's words, not his, so emphatically here? Because what was to follow was what God wanted the people of Israel to know and wants us to know. At this time, Israel was in a time of unrest. David had had to fight off claims to the throne. His reign was at an end. He was old and dying. A new king was taking over. And the people were possibly nervous about their future. And God, through David, gives a picture of his ideal king. He will be one who rules justly and with righteousness and in complete submission to God. Such a king will bring light when there was darkness and nourishment and new life. The ideal king will be a great blessing to his people. Now the temptation for leaders or anyone in authority is to forget that they too are also under authority. If we don't have accountability, we can easily be ruled by our own sinful wants and desires as we seek to please ourselves instead of God. David knew this all too well. He started his kingship well, but when, uh, but then as we have learned over the last few weeks, he took his eyes off God, allowed himself to get comfortable and in his own strength, and fell into sin in his personal life and family life, which all had a terrible effect on how he ruled as king. The lesson is there for us all. How often have we got comfortable in our own lives, started trusting ourselves and our own abilities, and taken our eyes off God, the one who has provided all we have and need, only to see lethargy, ineffectiveness, and sin come into our lives? The effective life for God becomes ineffective when we take our eyes off God and put them on ourselves. David's reign as king didn't meet God's standard for a just and righteous king. His sin disqualified him. Neither did the lives of the kings that followed after David's reign. These words that God spoke look forward to a time where a perfect king will reign, 100% justly and whose righteousness is sufficient for all. And that perfect king is Jesus Christ. And in Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7, we see the ideal king. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment 
injustice. For that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And even though David acknowledges in verse 5 that his own house doesn't meet God's criteria for an ideal king, he held on to the covenant promise that God had made to him in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now David had complete faith in God that he would do what he had promised he would do. That at some time God would establish the throne of David's kingdom forever. As David's life was coming to an end, he had confidence in death. Not confidence in himself, but confidence in a faithful God. The covenant doesn't rest on David being worthy because we know he wasn't. The covenant rests on um, God's faithfulness. David has confidence that the kingdom of Israel will be secure because of God's promise to him and the knowledge that God will be faithful to his promises. David's faith in God would show Israel that they too could have faith in their future as they also trust their promise-keeping God. When I was um, probably about 11, 11 or 12, our school went on a trip up to Northland and we went to Kerry Kerry and we went to the stone store there. And me and two of my mates we um, decided to have a deer. This is confession time. We decided to have a deer that um, we would each steal something from that store. This was before I was a Christian. Um, so we, we went about that, and I stole a little wooden um, spoon carved out of kauri, and um, I took it home and I gave it to my mum as a present. <laughs> and um, interestingly enough, when I did become a Christian, I felt really convicted, actually. This is a side story. I became really convicted, so I, I told her that I had stolen it from the stone store though, a few years back. And she, she kind of laughed because she wasn't a Christian, <laughs> and she thought it was quite funny. But when my mum died about 10 years ago, I, uh, we were cleaning out their house. And I found the spoon, and I took it home, and it sits in our drawer at home today. And it sits there, and every time I see it, it's a reminder to me um, of the sinner that I am, but it's also a reminder to me of the faithfulness of God, that he can turn a sinner into someone who is saved because of his grace. And I gave a promise to my children. I said, when we go to Kerry Kerry next, I am going to take some money and I'm going to go to the stone store and I'm going to make restitution for that thing that I did many years ago and I will pay for that spoon. So I made a promise to my children and 
And interestingly enough, maybe we might be going up that way in, in this coming summer, so I might be able to make good on that promise. But the thing with promises that we make, um, often we fall short. I, I know I, there have been times when I've made promises to my kids and said, yep, let's, we'll play some football later on this afternoon. And then I get caught up with things or I go and have a nap or whatever. And the afternoon disappears and I don't keep my promise. Sometimes there might be times when I talk to my clients and I say, yeah, I'll give you a call later on today before the end of the day. And things get busy or I get into another meeting and then I miss that time, the time's gone past, and I didn't keep that promise. But it's not so with God. When God makes a promise, he is faithful to that promise. He is not like us. He is not like me in that regard. He is always faithful to his promises. When God makes a promise, it will be kept. And his promise to David, we have that through Jesus Christ. He is the one who will be just, and he will reign forever. So as we head to these last two verses, we see the judgment of God. And they say this, But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. David's last words end with a warning to those who choose to turn away from God's grace and truth. Sons of rebellion, it means worthless, wicked men, and was a name given to Eli's sons in 1 Samuel. In fact, it was quite a common phrase in the book of, books of Samuel, been used nine times already in reference to different people. So what is God trying to teach us about such people, these worthless, wicked men? He tells us they are like thorns that will hurt and cause pain to people and need to be removed and ultimately burnt in the fire. These verses blaze out to us as a warning to turn back from living worthless, and wicked lives, and turn to the just and righteous eternal king. The thing is that David himself could easily have been one of those wicked, worthless men, were it not for a merciful God. His sins against Bathsheba and Uriah were certainly worthless and wicked acts. But unlike the sons of rebellion, David sought forgiveness and turned back to God with conviction, remorse, and humility. We see his repentant heart all throughout Psalm 51, which starts with these words, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David came to God with a broken and contrite spirit 
and a repentant heart, seeking forgiveness for his sins. And God saw his heart and in his merciful love forgave him. The wonderful news for us is that God doesn't change. When we come to God with a broken and contrite heart, seeking forgiveness for our own sins, God says he will forgive. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful promise to hold on to. Our sinfulness shows us and means that we should be dealt with like the worthless and wicked men of these verses, removed and thrown away to be burned, separated from God. But through the grace and mercy and love of God, poured out onto us through his Son, the only true and just and righteous King, the Lord Jesus, we can be saved from this fate. Just like David had confidence in God and the in God's covenant promise to him, we can have confidence that if we have accepted Christ as our Savior, we will one day be with him in glory as he suffered our judgment by dying on the cross for our sins. When he said, it is finished, we know that there is now nothing left for us to pay. Our sins have been paid in full. Someone once told me that when you see the wrath of God in the Bible, you'll also see his grace. Here we see judgment and the wrath of God in verses 6 and 7, but we also see his grace. In the life of David and in the just and righteous eternal king that will be on the throne forever. So as David comes to the end of his life, we still see a man after God's own heart. We see a man who sins and falls, but also repents and seeks God. A man who knows that all he has and all he has done is because of God, not himself. A man who wants to encourage and share the word of God one last time. He is still a man whose heart's desire is to seek to do the will of God and to do everything God wants him to do, to have a heart that points to his creator, to walk in absolute trust and faith, to love God's word and to be thankful to the Lord in all things and all times and to worship him. May we also desire to be people after God's own heart. And as we look back over these verses, of David's last words to the people of Israel. Let us heed the warning that is as relevant today as it was in David's time and seek to be citizens of Christ's kingdom, the one who will justly reign forever and in all righteousness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you. For your promise. Lord, we thank you for the truth. And we thank you that you have given us a way 
to come out, Lord, away from our sin through the work of your Son. We thank you that we have a just and righteous ruler who will reign forever. We come before you with praise and thanks for who you are and for what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. 